You can open your Bibles if you want to to, to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Um, it's a good, for, especially for those of you that make notes in your Bible, you might want to do that. Um, you should have all of the verses on in your packet that we're going to be looking at tonight. But if you like to make little notes and things like that in your Bible, then that would be a good place to probably turn because we'll spend a fair amount of time there uh, tonight as we go through this uh, story that we're going to lay out and look at uh, this evening. We, when we began all the way back, well, this bleeds over into, we, we've done a lot of different things on Wednesday night, all kind of aiming at the same kind of general premise. We began with trying to understand a little bit of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us in his words. We spent a little bit of time in just some systematic theology and going through some key terms and things like that that were really helpful, I think, building a, a, a foundation for us to understand where we are right now. And so as we've established, God's word is final, is authoritative, is inerrant and infallible, and this is a little bit of who God is. Now we're in the process of looking at who he has revealed himself to be through the Old Testament story, what we call the Old Testament story, uh, beginning with creation and who he created man to be, um, then Abraham and on. I think it's so helpful. One of the biggest, I think, fundamental shifts in my mind and my thinking about who God is in the story of the Bible came when you understand that the vast majority of the Bible can be understood in kingdom language. That God has established creation, and He has, uh, which is basically His kingdom from everything that you can see. That's His. He owns it all. He's established it all, and He has created the earth, which is also His, the fullness thereof, as the Bible tells us. And He put man and woman on the earth to have dominion. They were His vice regents. They were given the privilege of living in His image and ruling and reigning and exercising dominion over the entire earth. That's kingdom language. But what we see is just even in our review section of our notes, we can look at how this kingdom has, maybe you might say, devolved over time. God established this kingdom, and Adam and Eve, instead of abiding by his rules, uh, broke them. They sinned against him. You have to understand that fundamental problem that happens in Genesis chapter 3 God not only gives them dominion, but uh, he, he, he tells, he had, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve are told to stay away from. But what that means, though, is that they had the knowledge of good. They had access to the knowledge of good. Who was that? God himself was the provider of all the things that they needed to know. So all of the knowledge of good was coming from him. But Adam and Eve, in spite of being told, all you need is me, essentially, they're standing next to the tree, or they're standing somewhere in the vicinity, and Satan says, has he really told you not to eat any of, of anything, of any of the trees? In the no, 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 we can eat. We just can't eat of that tree. Neither shall we touch it, and the day we do, we will die. Well, you will surely not die. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. So there's a promise that Satan gives to them that there's something fundamental that you need that God hasn't provided for you. You need something that you don't have access to. And if you only take and eat, then you will have it. And then you will be able to fully reign like God does. Well, it's a, a lie, right? Because there's nothing that they need 
to exercise God's dominion over the earth that he's not providing for them. And so they break the rules, uh, or the rule, and God removes them from the Garden of Eden. And as you look through Israel's history, essentially, there is a, a long establishment of God demonstrating for them how his kingdom is going to function. And really, why they can't be a part of it, right? If you think of the Old Testament law, nobody could keep it. They couldn't actually do it. They always said they would, but then they turned to the other gods. They turned to false gods, the Baals, the Ashtaroth. They turned to all of these other gods. They could never actually keep the law and keep themselves faithful to God's covenant. They couldn't do it. And so the vast majority of God's establishing his kingdom through Israel is demonstrating for them that this is why you can't be a part of my kingdom. Because holiness is required, and you're not. And so we get uh, this book of Genesis. It's tracking God's election of a family, Abraham's family, through which God will ultimately establish his kingdom on earth through a new Adam. And there's all these kinds of promises in Genesis. We see, we see some of them in, uh, in the New Testament that the New Testament authors pick up on. And through Abraham, there is an establishment of a, of a covenant family, uh, a group of people called the Hebrews that come together at Mount Sinai, and God promises them in Exodus 19.6 that he is making of them a kingdom of priests to him, which means that he's setting them aside for his own special possession, but priests... Uh, have to have both a connection to God, right? Then they also have to have a connection to other people, right? They are the priest for the rest of the world, essentially is how that's, that's going to function. But what, again, he's establishing is that even though you are a kingdom of priests, you still can't be a priesthood because you can't act like a priesthood and you can't maintain holiness and you can't consecrate yourself. You can't make yourself holy. And so they wander through the desert for 40 years. They go into the, the promised land, and there they're told, you must drive out all of the evil. You must purge the evil from among you. That's both within your tribe and within the land that you're going to. And we find in Judges, they can't drive the people in the land out. They would rather just live with them. And so we see in the book of Judges this downward spiral of all of Israel continuing to pursue idolatry and pagan religion. And every once in a while, God brings in an oppressor. They realize they're oppressed. They turn back to God in repentance. He gives to them a judge to relieve them of the pressure, if you will, in their repentance. And then once the judge relieves, the, relieves them of, their pre, of the pressure they go right back again to idolatry. And so on and on this cycle goes. But throughout the book of Judges, it progressively gets worse until the very end where it's almost as bad as it could be. Some of the most heinous stories are there at the end of the book of Judges. So now we get to the book of 1 Samuel. And there's a reason I skipped Ruth. I'll get back to that later uh, in subsequent weeks. But we, we get to the book of 1 Samuel and we see there in the book of 1 Samuel, it begins with essentially Samuel's birth and how that uh, came about. Um, you have his mother, uh, Hannah, and uh, her husband, Elkanah. Hannah, Hannah cannot get pregnant. And she has, there's another wife in the picture, Penina, not to be confused with Panini, which is a tasty sandwich, okay? <laughs> Penina. <laughs> 
Penina is another wife. And, and as, you know, as it would go, when there's two wives and one husband, it tends to not be marital bliss and harmony, all right? So Penina can have tons of kids, and she's having kids all day, and, and she's looking at Hannah, and she's kind of making fun of her, and Hannah is not liking that. She's growing in resentment. And so she is just uh, in mourning, essentially, the fact that she cannot have children, and so she is begging the Lord to give her children. Now, Samuel uh, is the is the product, ultimately is the child that God does give to Hannah. And what we see is that Samuel was considered to be a judge himself. Now, what is a judge? He's relief from the pressure of outside pagan forces that are seeking to put their foot on top of Israel or one of the tribes of Israel. But a judge is kind of like a chieftain. A chieftain would be like a king over a small, small territory, okay? So he is a, a judge himself. We see that in Acts 13, 20. Uh, as the description goes, all this took about 450 years there in your verse packet. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So, and then after that, we see the kings come in. So all the judges last up until the kings. So technically, in the book of 1 Samuel, we have not left the era of the judges just yet. Samuel is still considered to be the last judge, Eli and then Samuel after that. So he's a judge. And then we also see that uh, while he wasn't a priest per se, he was a Levite. Now, who are the Levites? Well, they're the priestly community, right? That The priest would come from the tribe of Levi. Now, when we talk about high priests and things like that, those were special designations for certain people. But the Levites had certain privileges and responsibilities inside later the temple and now in this era that we're talking about, the tabernacle. So they did have certain responsibilities. So we have here Samuel, who is a judge, sort of like a chieftain or a king over a little kind of area. He is a Levite, so he's in the priestly class, but he wasn't just those things. He was also a prophet. In fact, he was the head of the prophets. He was identified already in Acts 13 20 as a prophet. Uh, I would say one of the foremost, probably, of the prophets would be Samuel, first and foremost, the head of the prophets. Look at 1 Samuel 3, uh, 1, and then verse 20. Who will read that out loud for me? All right, so we have there in chapter 3 the identification. Now, you need to understand the time period we're in. So this is clearly coming from a time sometime in the future after the kingdom is established and after prophecy or prophets are pretty regular in those days. They're looking back and going, you need to understand the time period we're talking about. In these days, prophecy was rare. In fact, unheard of. And here is Samuel in the temple under the ministry of 
Eli, hearing a word from the Lord. In fact, hearing so clearly from God, he thinks it's Eli. God is calling to him. He's convinced it's Eli. So he goes to Eli and says, what did you want? Eli says, I didn't want anything. So he comes to him again. What did you want? I didn't want anything. Comes to him again. What did you want? This time when somebody calls you, you need to say, here I am. What do you want? Because <laughs> I'm not calling you. And so he realizes eventually this is the Lord that's actually calling him. So this is a significant movement. And one of the reasons this book is, one of the many reasons this book is separated from the book of Judges is because here we begin a pattern where God is actually speaking to people and giving them uh, messages, and Samuel is the first and foremost of them. Now, it's going to be really important later on as we think about the time period that this is occurring in, when God begins to speak to Samuel. Has there been nationwide repentance? No. Are all of the people in Israel gathered together and of one mind and heart, of one accord in unity? Are they all dedicated to following the Lord? No. And yet here is God taking this little boy before he's ever born, giving his mother such distress that she would call out to the Lord and tell him, you know what? If you just give me a child... I'll give him right back to you. If you just give me a child, I'll set him apart for you. You can use him for whatever you want. I'll come visit him every once in a while. Done. <laughs> so God is already doing this before Eli is ever, I mean, before Samuel is ever even born. He has set him apart for the purpose of being a prophet of the priestly community and a king, kind of. Does that sound like somebody? You know? Do you see a pattern that God is already establishing for how his kingdom will function? You see, here I am. Uh, sorry, I don't know what that was. but uh, So he's, he's establishing a way his kingdom will function. And remember, in order to get to Jesus... In a thousand years from where we are now, roughly, a little more than a thousand years from where we are now in Samuel's story, God has a lot to teach the people. He's got a lot to prepare them for. You can't just drop Jesus into the middle of all this and have him die on a cross and everybody go, I totally understand what that means. No. Remember, this is a kingdom of priests. These people are not only going to have to be the ones that receive Jesus, ultimately crucify, play a part in his crucifixion, sure, but not only receive Jesus, but play the role of teaching everybody else what that meant. Where would the Gentiles be with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus without Paul, a Jew, going to tell them? Where would they be? They wouldn't be anywhere. So he's got to prepare this community, this family, to understand what's about to happen when we get to what we call the New Testament. And so he's already preparing these categories of prophet, priest, and king early on, even in Samuel, and what we're going to see even in David uh, before then in the book of Ruth. Okay, so we've got uh, prophet, uh, pri uh, 
a priest-ish and a king-ish uh, coming in the role of Samuel. But then there's this guy, Eli, who's over, really, the, he's the, the priest, and he's got some sons, and his sons are, what's a good word to describe Hophni and Phinehas? Worthless. That would be a good way to describe it. They're worthless. Um, Eli has these sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And though it, it seems as though Eli... Uh, Eli seems to be like your, your kind of good guy, decent enough. Seems like he has a heart for the Lord, but did not discipline his kids. Certainly did not teach any of this to his children. And his children, Hophni and Phinehas are not at all like their dad in any way, uh, much less are they consecrated to the Lord. In fact, they seem to be bent on changing the, the tabernacle and the function of the tabernacle to be a lot more like the, the, the immorality associated with the cult of Baal and all of the pagan worship that goes on there to the point where we're seeing them actually take advantage of women that are coming in to make sacrifices. They're taking advantage of the sacrifice. You know, the priests get some sacrifice. They get some of the portion to actually keep for themselves because they have no uh, things of their own, essentially. And so they're actually taking advantage of that. They're taking from the Lord what rightfully belongs to Him. They're taking advantage of the women that are there. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 2, 12 to 17. Uh, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. It's a good description, Blake. Good job. Uh, were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. All right, so uh, who doesn't like a little fat in their meat? Let's be honest, all right? It tastes a little better, right? So they're taking advantage of the sacrifice and taking from God what is rightfully His. He has set the parameters around the priest and what they can and cannot eat and what they can't take from the sacrifice. And so they're intentionally abusing that, mainly because you see at the very beginning in verse 12, they're worthless men, and they don't know the Lord. So Hophni and Phinehas are worthless. They're terrible. Now, Shiloh. Does the word Shiloh ring a bell to you? What is Shiloh? What is it? Besides a song. Is that what you're thinking? Oh. What's that? Oh, Yeah. Shiloh is the place in uh, the land of, uh, in the promised land, right? Almost in the smack dab middle of the promised land, where the tabernacle sat for, through the era of the judges. It was at Shiloh until it eventually fell. Um, it's a place actually you can visit today, and they're pretty sure they've got the location of where the tabernacle would have been marked out. It's a pretty small area, as it turns out, and there's, it's very hilly, and there's really one 
pretty sizable flat spot uh, in the hill, and in that flat spot they found, they found uh, truckloads of pottery. So that seems to indicate that, are, that go back to about this date. So that seems to indicate that this is exactly where the tabernacle would have been. Um, so, uh, so Shiloh is, uh, is where the tabernacle is located, and Hophni and Phinehas are uh, essentially priests under Eli, their father, who are responsible for the upkeep of the tabernacle, and they've turned it into a cult of Baal. We find out in 1 Samuel 2, 22-25, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of, of, of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good. Uh, it, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for, for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. All right. Now, we're going to actually see that this happens. But first, we see that the environment that young Samuel was called by Yahweh and appointed to be is both prophet and judge. Uh, It was in this environment that he was called to be prophet and judge. Now, remember that, though. Put that in your mind, that in the midst of this kind of culture, a wicked and twisted culture that we see as no different than the book of Judges, that God has, before the kid was ever born, set this Samuel aside for this work. Okay? Just think about that for just a second. We'll talk about it at the end. But just think about that. Now, as far as the setting of when we're talking about, which I think is really, really important here, um, the presence of the Philistines in the early years of Samuel has to be related I think, and most people would agree with this, that this is related to the 40-year oppression of the Philistines that's listed in Judges 13.1. Look at that there on your verse list. Who will read that out loud for me? Somebody. All right. That right there is in the book of Judges. You remember what uh, whose sequence that starts? Who is it? What judge does that start? Samson. All right. Uh, I said Samson, but it's not. It's Samson. Uh, so, sorry, I have a habit of doing that. Do I have two more blanks on this bullet point? Are there two more blanks or no? no. Okay, I just have them on, listed on mine. But um, The only known Philistine oppression in the 12th century, 12th and 11th century, uh, B.C. commenced in 1124 and ended in 1084, all right? So the Philistines came in and oppressed. I'm sorry, I don't know what that is popping, but I don't know if it's a microphone or if it's me or what, but I'm sorry. I can't do anything about it. Um, maybe. All right, let's see if it's the antenna. I'm going to poke that out of the jacket there and see so we can stop that annoying noise. Okay, um, so there's this um, part of the, the rule of the, the Philistines that's happening there for about 40 years. Looks like it's between 1124 and ends in 1084. Part of the reason we know that, there's a long kind of complicated trail. I'm not going to go into too much of it. But if you look back to Jephthah, 
who was uh, just before Samson. We get uh, Jephthah giving us a year that it has been 300 years since they entered the promised land. So from there, we get a kind of a date, a loose date at least from him. What we also find out in Jephthah's story is that God sent the Ammonites, who is Jephthah's main enemy, and the Philistines at the same time. So what we know about the story of Judges is that Jephthah's story is recorded first, and then Samson's story is recorded second, but they happened concurrently. They happened at the same time. So Jephthah is doing his deal, and the author of Judges tells you about that, and then Samson does his deal, and the author of Judges is telling you about that, but they happen at the same time. And so we basically are able to kind of track down a date that's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 1124, and if it's a 40-year oppression, do the math, it comes out to about 1084 loosely there. So Samson's reign, or Samson's rule as judge, um, was about was 20 years, we find out, in that story. So within the 40-year oppression of the Philistines, Samson's rule as judge is about 20 years of that. When he begins uh, as a young man, kind of taking the jawbones of donkeys and starts doing his stuff uh, against the Philistines, right? And starts, you know, kind of hurting people. All right. So Samson, it seems, is born very early in this period and judged Israel for uh, for 20 years, it says, in the days of the Philistines. That's what we find out in Judges 15, 20. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. All right. Now, his leadership then fell within that 40-year window at about the, the last half of that 40-year window of oppression of the Philistines. But he died before the Philistines were ever defeated. Remember, you'll remember the scene, he's chained to the, the uh, pillars in the Philistine temple in uh, Gaza, I believe it is, and he, and there he takes the pillars and he pulls them in on himself, and the the temple kills everybody there. So he does that right towards the end in this uh, looks like 1084 ish range, but still before the Philistines are actually crushed is where Samson is is working. Now that's really important because most likely. Samson began his heroic deeds about midway through the oppression when he was about 20 years old, roughly. So we, we get that kind of feeling from the text or based on when he was born and, and what the Philistines had already done then. And so uh, he judged for 20 years before he died. Now, Samson begins his beating down of the Philistines. If you were the Philistines and God had clearly given Samson some sort of superior strength, so much so that he was killing a lot of your men all at once, what would you do? What would be your thought process? How would you take down a civilization? Well, you would probably go to the thing that's the most important to them, wouldn't you? In Israel's case, what's the thing that's the most important to them? What is it? The Ark of the Covenant, right? You kind of know the story. You get where we're going. The tabernacle. Where is the tabernacle? At Shiloh. So, since Samson was clearly empowered by, uh, miraculously by the God of Israel, what better way was there to address the problem than to attack the Israelite, what they would call a cult center, at Shiloh? In fact, Hophni and Phinehas had kind of turned it into that. And so, in 1104, we get this uh, battle that takes place, the Battle of Aphek. 
And it happens in the town of Aphek. So we get this battle in 1104 where the Philistines had assembled at Aphek and the Israelites had gathered at Ebenezer. I'm going to give you a map here in just a little bit, Shannon, so you'll be able to pick out these locations on the map. I know you like that. So, um, so but the, the Philistines had gathered at Aphek. They're about ready to attack the stronghold of Shiloh where the tabernacle is situated Probably, if our timeline is right, and I think the timeline is right, uh, if our timeline is right, probably because Samson has created so much havoc for the Philistines, they've got to do something. And they've got to take Israel out at their knees. And so that's what their job is going to be, basically, there in the Battle of Aphek. So, the attack on Israel, um, where am I at here? The attack on Israel at Aphek could well have been a reaction to the early battles of Samson against the Philistines, which began about this time. Okay, now let's take a look at a map so we get our geography here. There's a lot of cities, all right? We're going to ignore half these cities, all right? But we'll come back to them later. I don't know, man. Um, all right, so the Philistines are gathered here. Uh, the Israelites are gathered. Where are they gathered? I forget. Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Yeah, that's what I thought. So the Philistines are gathered at Ebenezer. They're situated in between, notice, in between the Philistines and Shiloh. Ark of the Covenant is here at Shiloh. Now, do you remember what happens in this battle? All right. Do what? Yeah, so Israel goes out to battle, and they think to themselves, I mean, how would you approach battle? You, you walked into, you walked out of Egypt and they gave you all their possessions. The sea parted in front of you, and the sea closed behind you to kill Pharaoh and his men. Joshua walks into the promised land, Moses and Joshua whipping a lot of people along the way, and then walks into the promised land and starts running people scared in front of them. So you're thinking, well, as long as we've got the Ark of the Covenant, we're good. The Ark, remember, is at Shiloh. They are about 25 miles to the west of Shiloh here at Ebenezer, and another two miles so to Aphek. And so they're thinking, look, as long as the ark is protected, as long as we've got God on our side, no one can defeat us until they go into the battle with the Philistines and they get their tail whooped. Okay, so if you're thinking to yourself, the ark is our good luck charm, the ark isn't technically with them, right? I mean, are we following the conventional wisdom? Yeah. So what then would you do? Go get it. Bring it a little closer to us. So we'll get some of the juju juice and we'll be able to maybe, don't rub it. Don't touch it. <laughs> don't rub it. Don't even look at it. Just bring it somewhere in the vicinity and we'll go into battle. And since we have it close, We'll get some of the good luck sauce, and we'll, it, it'll allow us to defeat the Philistines. That's the problem. It's 25 miles away. The, there's bound to be a radius or something. That, uh, so let's bring it closer. So they go, and they get it, and they bring it closer to them. And, of course, they beat the Philistines, don't they? No, not hardly. The Philistines crush them. But now what do they do? They take the ark. In fact... The ark essentially becomes for the Philistines, or at least what they think. I'm going to take this off, and maybe that will help the popping sound. Let's see if that works. Let me see all my muscles. Um, 
So they, they, they take the ark as a trophy of war. And, but there's something that happens in the book of 1 Samuel that's really interesting. Uh, here you have a priest who is pretty worthless and his two sons who are even worthlesser who are responsible or are, are there when the Ark of the Covenant is taken. In fact, Hophni and Phinehas actually accompany the Ark out to the battlefield. And when they do and the Philistines crush the Israelites, they kill Hophni and Phinehas and they take the Ark back with them as a trophy of war. And word makes it back to Eli, both of your sons died today in the battle. Eli, who's a, described as a rather large man, is sitting in a chair propped back, I guess on two legs, and he, when he hears it, he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and he dies. Now you have at the beginning of the book of Samuel the death of a, a corrupt father in all of his, and in both of his sons. And a father who didn't punish his sons and, and both of his sons all die. At the end of the book of 1 Samuel, what do you have happen? Saul and his sons all die on the exact same day too. So what we see is that, it, for one, the Ark of the Covenant is no good luck charm. God is no one's rabbit's foot. That's one thing that's very clear in the text. He will be no one's rabbit's foot. Um, the other thing is that what he cares most about is wickedness and purging it from Israel. He's going to do that regardless of where that wicked person is. If that's in the priesthood, he'll kill them. If it's in the kingship, he'll kill them. And you see, even from the verses of Scripture, hey, God's intent was to kill Hophni and Phinehas. And he accomplished his goal. He killed them. Um, but the ark was taken. Surely God doesn't want the ark taken. Well, the Philistines are going to find they got a little more than they bargained for, too. Um, so the Philistines take it back, and they say, well, we've got this trophy, and it's a god after all, isn't it? In fact, back up, before they bring it out to the, when they bring it out to the battlefield, all the Philistines tremble because they say they have a god in their midst. So they're equating in their minds that thing that they've brought out as an idol. In fact, Israel is treating it like an idol. The Ark of the Covenant is not an idol. The way it's described typically in the prophets is a footstool where God rests his feet. His, his throne is in the heavens, and the earth is his footstool, and the place where his feet rests is the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's kind of how it's described in the prophets. And so, but the Israelites are treating it like it's an idol, and so they bring it out there on the battlefield. Well, the, the Philistines think that's their God, and so they start to tremble. There's a God in the midst. Oh, no. Well, what do you do with a God when you capture it? You put it in your temple. So they take it back to their temple and they put it in their temple next to their God and they come in the next day. This is one of my boy's favorite stories in all the Bibles, by the way. Uh, they bring it back in the temple and the next morning, Dagon, their God, who's a part fish, part man, he's, uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, we get to Jonah. But anyway, uh, he falls over on his face in front of the ark. And so they walk in the next day and they go, wait a second, how is Dagon, who, who came in here and tipped him over? So they prop him back up. And they come in the next day, Dagon's falling over again, and this time his head's rolling off on by the, by the doorway of the sanctuary. And so they're like, we can't step on the doorway anymore. And so they pick that up and like super glue it back together, I guess. But what happens in the midst of all of that is all of the people of Ashdod 
begin to break out in some sort of boil, probably hemorrhoids. Okay, the reason is, and that sounds terrible, and I'm not just making a jump there. That's what the word actually means, is a a hemorrhoid. It could also mean a boil of some kind. Some people think they broke out in the bubonic plague. And there's some merit to this. If you notice later on, when they have to make penance, they're going to send the ark back, just as spoiler alert, they send it back, and they make golden, what they call tumors, what's probably called tumors in your copy of the ESV at least. Um, it's a, they, anyway, it's a ball of gold, basically. Um, and then they also make mice. So the mice are often associated with the bubonic plague, and so there's boils that break out, and mice are the ones that like are basically responsible for spreading the bubonic plague, it seems. And so what, it, what might be going on is that the bubonic plague broke out due to an infestation of mice that God basically sent into the community because they've got the Ark of the Covenant there. Now, an idol-worshiping community who, or cult, culture who basically looks for signs and omens, they see this massive plague break out where people are dying, and they've either got hemorrhoids or got, got some sort of boil or something, they're going to do whatever is necessary to get that thing away. So what do they do? Give it back to Israel? No. They send it to their sister city. <laughs> I love it. They send it to Gath. They're like, well, get it out of here. Maybe Gath will take it. So they send it down to Gath, and Gath's like, uh, why don't you want it? And they're like, don't worry about that. Just here, take it. And so they take it, and all of a sudden, the bubonic plague, hemorrhoids, boils, whatever it is, breaks out amongst them, and they go, get this cursed thing away from us. Let's send it to a sister city. And so they pass it on down the road. And now, uh, so Ashdod sends it to Gath. Gath sends it to Ekron. Ekron is like, no, we don't want this. We hear about what's going on there. We don't want it at all. Well, things start to happen to, to Ekron, and they decide, look, Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to send the thing back to, to the Israelites. Just send it on up the road. We don't want it. It takes about seven months for all this thing to, to break down. But eventually they decide this is no trophy whatsoever. We're going to send it back. And so for 20 years, the ark remains there at Kiriath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab. So it's not in the tabernacle anymore. It's now in the house of Abinadab for about 20 years. All right. So what then happens? Well, Samson's dead. He's been dead for who knows how long, maybe a year, maybe a little less. And it was Samuel. Oh, I forgot to put that up there. I guess it didn't click over. Everybody got that trophy of war? Okay. Um, It was Samuel who finally ended the Philistine rule and enabled the Israelites to regain their former territories. Now, how does he do that? Look at 1 Samuel Uh, 7, which is on the back, very last, 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 to 4 and 12 to 14. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistine. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. This is different than the book of Judges. Remember in the book of Judges, the people get persecuted. They cry out to the Lord. They begin to do this. 
put away some of the ash, Ashroth, and then the Lord delivers them. But there's not this heartfelt return to the Lord in perpetual service. It's not until Samuel comes in that says, serve him only, and he will do this. See, Samuel's job, unlike the judges, is not merely to be a leader of the people, but he's also a prophet and a priest. He has priestly duties. So in the office that Samuel embodies, he's actually teaching the people not just how not to be persecuted, but how to live righteously. Remember how Judges ends. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When Samuel comes in, He's correcting that. And he's saying, no longer are you going to do what's right in your own eyes. Now you're going to follow the direction of the Lord. Put away the Baals. Put away the Ashtaroth. Dedicate your heart to the Lord. He's the only one capable of delivering you. So we see in 1 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said... Till now, the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. Um, So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and Israel. The Amorites. I still didn't get that last thing up there. I don't think. There it is, Samuel. Um, so now let's take a look back at this, this map again, just as a reminder. Um, Aphek, where the Philistines had encamped, Ebenezer, where the children of Israel had camped, Ark comes back here, Arks get taken by, by the, uh, by the uh, Philistines and taken down to their cities. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. These are the five major cities of the Philistines that they own. In fact, this is under Palestinian control right now. This is the same um, Palestine, Philistine, same. Okay, you get the idea. These are under, uh, these are the places you cannot visit, uh, in other words, if you go over there. Well, it's just not smart. Let's put it that way. Um, So these are the Philistine cities. They get here to Ekron. They send it on up. They send the ark back on up to Kiriath-Jerim, where it sits. Jer- this is not very far from Jerusalem, so I think probably about 10, 15 miles from Jerusalem. Um, but I want you to notice what, what's happening here is that there is a decided turn, not from the people. The people aren't the one that pivot. The people aren't the one that turn their hearts back to the Lord before he provides for them a prophet, priest, and kingly person to help direct them and lead them and guide them, shepherd them into truth and righteousness. It's not the people that cause this. God does it. In the days of Samson, God is raising up a person, even now, that's going to guide them and lead them. They're going to ask for a king in 1 Samuel. The problem is not them asking for a king. In fact, king is prophesied as far back as Abraham. Moses even tells them they're going to need a king. They're going, to, they're going to have a king. The problem with the Israelites is that Samuel is leading them 
And God is preparing a king. Who is he preparing? Well, the book of Ruth tells you that. Who he's preparing is who? David. He's preparing a man after his own heart that will lead them as a prophet, priest, and king that will shepherd them and guide them into truth and righteousness. But what do the people want? We want a king like all the other nations. Okay. You want a king like all the other nations? What? You probably want a tall guy, right? Yeah! We want a tall guy. No offense, Bob. There's nothing wrong with tall people, but you get the idea. Saul was probably about your height. So, <laughs> yeah, we want a tall guy. All right. Yeah, you want him big and strong? Yeah, we want one big and strong. All right. How about that guy hiding back by the luggage over there? How about you take him? The problem is that they want a king like everyone else. And what they're rejecting is Samuel, who is directing and guiding them and preparing their hearts for the king that God has. Incidentally, David, was he tall? Nope. Was he strong? No, not hardly. Couldn't even carry the armor of Saul. He was weak. But he was righteous. That's the difference. He was righteous. And that, as it turns out, is going to be more important for Israel than anything else. But do you know what happens under David's rule? He unites all the tribes under his monarchy. So it ends up that it's not the strong, it's not the mighty, because who's driving out the people in front of them? God is. The guy doesn't have to be strong. He doesn't have to be an imposing force. He needs to be righteous. It's a reminder, yet again, throughout the Old Testament. It's not about the physical attributes. It's not about all the things that you can do or whatever. It's about the heart of a person. It's pursuing holiness and righteousness. It's always been about that. Questions, comments? So we're in roughly 1084. Saul comes on the scene at about 1050. 1050 to 1000 is how long he reigns, roughly. 1,000 to 950 is David's reign. And then Solomon is 950 to 900. Yes? There's the Ebenezer that's already assumed. Yeah. And then there's the Ebenezer that Samuel raises. Correct. Not at all confusing. Right? Yeah. Ebenezer, uh, Eben, Eben means stone. And when you put it all together, Ebenezer means uh, stone of help. So you see when, Saul, when Samuel dedicates the place, he calls it Ebenezer because the Lord has been our help this whole time. Uh, it's a stone of help is what it is. So he makes an altar, essentially, calls it a stone of help. So what you're saying is it became named that then. So when you're talking about the battle that preceded that, they used the new name for it for an earlier time. That's not at all clear, so I don't, I, okay. I don't know... Uh, I don't think Samuel is in the same place, is what I'm saying. I don't think he's in the same location. I could be wrong about that. I have to look back. But I don't think that's anachronistic. The, uh, the name, what you're asking basically is, is the name of that city anachronistic, right? I don't think so. But I have to look back at the text because I can't remember for sure. Any other questions? All right.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder yet again that you care about our hearts, that you came to save our hearts, that even Jesus reminds us it's, what on, the, it's on the inside that defiles a man. So we pray for our hearts to be right, to be pure, to be upright, to be repentant, to be ready to confess sin and relinquish it, give it up totally, all for your name's sake, knowing that there is more joy and abundance in your house and better is one day there than a thousand elsewhere. So we pray, Father, that you would help us as a church body, as members, as Christians, as members of the body of Christ, to daily walk over the bellies of our sins and our lusts, to put them to death, to live as morally upright people, as representatives of your kingdom being fulfilled in Christ. We're grateful for that opportunity, but it's intimidating and it's difficult as we think about it. We're so grateful for your spirit who gives us help. We pray to trust in that and to see in our own lives growth and sanctification over time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.